And on that note, and having Yahoo as their search engines, uh, hello there, fellow armchair historians. Welcome to a, yet another installment of Yesterday's History. I'm Connor, hanging out here with Jackson on yet another lonely Friday afternoon. On this podcast, we explore events, people, places, and other noteworthy things that might have happened on this day of recording. So, Jackson, would you like to uh, lead us in and tell us what day we're supposed to be recording? Well, the day of recording is January 22nd, 1905, and the topic of interest today... No, 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 no. we're not recording in 1905. We're point. way ahead of our time. <laughs> it is 2021, Happy, so not 1905, but that might clue you into the actual event, which is Bloody Sunday, or Red Sunday, depending on how you've heard it. Uh, There's been many Bloody Sundays around, but uh, this one takes place in Russia. Yeah, because the other one was in uh, Ireland, right? Dublin, yeah. Oh, wait, before we continue. Which was far less bloody than you would think. Ooh, that beer just popped me in the face. Hang on, hang on, I didn't get my wire. Uh, We are grabbing a nice St. Bernardus, I think. Bernardus, yeah, Bernardus. Belgian, apparently. It's a solid Belgian beer, but we're going to drink this through the entire podcast and uh, hope it lasts. Is it good? Yeah. That's just like Germany. Mm. My beer just blew up in my face. It's really good. All right. On that note. Bloody Sunday. On that particular day, a vast number of Russian factory workers marched on the Winter Palace, home of the Russian Tsar, Nicholas II, uh, at the behest of a Father Gapin in order to deliver a petition calling for reform within the factories of St. Petersburg. Tsar Nicholas II, a steadfast, if not stubborn and short-sighted man, Steadfast is a good way to put, like, yeah. uh, obstinate is another way to put it. I, I would put it more short-sighted. Yeah. yeah, disinterested, short-sighted, you know, a cunt of a man. Nice way to say. Or you could just say he was a nice family man who didn't really care much for government. No, he was just kind of thrust into a position of power, and it, you know, kind of sucked for him. Yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can really tell he didn't. He, he wasn't really, didn't really want to be in charge of anybody. He just kind of got stuck with it. And did a, just a bad job. <laughs> a real bad job. Trust me. <laughs> Yeah, from from what we've been reading, and you know, I've only taken two classes on Russian history, and everybody says our Nicholas II was just, yeah, he'd probably been, he'd probably been a great like, you know, cobbler or something. Or he would have been a good family. He was a good family man. Yeah, just not a great you know leader of a massive state. So, um, basically. Uh, had deployed his he had employed deployed his imperial guard around the city to stop the march. Um, that Father Gapon was calling for, along with some auxiliary units, the protesters and Imperial Guard would wind up having a standoff that would end in a in bloodshed as the military forces opened fire on the unarmed crowd, uh, killing anywhere between 140 to 250 civilians. The numbers are widely disputed depending on, on uh, <laughs> which side you want to take. It depends on who you ask. Like yeah. if you ask the Tsarist forces, 96. Uh, you get 96, or if you ask the revolutionary forces, you get 4,000. 4, yeah. And causing nearly triple that in injuries. Well, triple the 140 to 250. However, while shooting unarmed civilians is a tragedy in and of itself, the fallout of these events on that 22nd of January in 1905 would cause a ripple effect throughout the Russian Empire, leading to more strikes, not just in St. Petersburg, but throughout the country, and culminating in 1905 Russian Revolution. Oh, sorry. I guess that shouldn't be 1905. That should be... Well, actually, there was a 1905 Revolution. Oh, yeah, there was a 1905 Revolution. 
Yeah, it did get shut down pretty quickly. It's one where Nicholas. It actually almost worked. Remember, like Nicholas II was supposed to, supposedly to have had his like resignation letter like written up, and then whatever the tipping point was wasn't reached. But anyway, let's let's dive into this. So, to set the stage for Bloody Sunday, we have to jump back about four and a half decades, back to 1861. It was in 1861 that Tsar Alexander II, uh, Tsar Nicholas II's great grandfather he had passed a decree that had finally emancipated the serfs of russia now a serf is a human who is bonded to a particular parcel of land and that land is usually owned by a lord therefore making that person particularly a slave of the landlord the serfs or it's kind of like a peasant but peasants are bound to their like lords and not the land which is a... well the serfs are kind of more like tied to that i mean the the landlord of a serf they pretty much own that person it's almost slavery it's basically but basically slavery but there's they don't really you don't really buy and sell serfs yeah the serfs are just su- you think you buy and sell the plots of land and the serfs come with it the serfs are just supposed to be there for uh you know when your landlord calls you to go to war or well, the landlord has a problem you can't deal with. The normal way to go about it in Russia at this time was just, you know, throw some surfs at it. They'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah, you just throw enough numbers at it, you know. Yeah, what whether that be like the road Napoleon's is, quote, uh, quantity. quantity has a quality all of its yeah. own. Whether the road has a pothole you need to fix or there's, a you know, like an invading country. Just more surfs and they'll figure it out. So the serfs were required by law to work, work at the land and pay taxes and duties to the landlord. It was an entirely medieval practice uh, that pretty much the rest of Europe had disavowed several decades before this. They moved on because of the you know like industrial revolution and stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. the industrial revolution had a huge part in this, and didn't really make it to Russia yet. No, because Russia is such a vast landmass, and like the country in and of itself is so big that a tiny country like Europe, or tiny country like Europe, Jesus. Uh, a tiny country like, you know, say, England or maybe Prussia at the time, they could industrialize really quickly and turn their entire population into a workforce. Russia couldn't do that because they were so far behind on everything. And taking that and trying to industrialize all of Russia at one time was, I mean, it was just a task in and of itself. Oh, yeah. And like the reasoning behind like why certain countries industrialize quicker than others is incredibly complicated and very like hotly debated and no one as far as i can tell has a really good handle on why some countries like took off the industrial revolution like the british or like the french or germans and why some nations like or peoples like the chinese and russians just didn't it's i mean it's just it's it's weird there's a ton that goes into it and i am certainly not qualified to take any position on it at all but basically I'm not even qualified, and I'm a historian. Yeah. So I graduated with my degree in history. So either way, I guess the important part of that is that Russia didn't industrialize as fast as everybody else, for whatever reason. So you still have then, you have industrial countries to the west, and then you have Russia itself, which is still a very feudal, very uh, uh, agricultural-based yeah. economy. And Russia, for all important parts, like... It does go from, like, Russia all the way to the Pacific, but the parts that matter are, like, the first, like, fifth of it on the western side. (laughs) Like, they own all that, but there's, like, a dozen people out there. (laughs) (laughs) Only a dozen, I would say. Yeah, average. 
So, as we said, Russia had not industrialized by this point. And due to its enormous size and its vast estates within the country, Russia had been slow to catch up to the other European countries when they finally did begin to industrialize. The result was serfdom lasting into the 19th century. Trying to catch up to the rest of Europe, the Russian state had set upon a great endeavor, and I underline the word great endeavor, yes, uh, I, I underline both those words, to modernize their country in, by building factories and bringing the rural folk into the cities. But in order to do this, serfdom had to be uh, brought to an abrupt end. So the people could leave their, I guess, certified estates. Yeah, because like legally these serfs could not leave the plot of land they were tied to. Literally legal. Like you couldn't leave where you were set down in a place and then... You stayed there forever. Yeah, you your family there. did too. Yeah, it was a bizarre thing. So it's hard to industrialize when you have your workforce literally cannot move. So the people who began, uh, people did begin to move into the cities. And while, an, while the 1861 decree from the Tsar did free the serfs, it did nothing for the economy as the serfs or peasants or... Is it derogatory to call them peasants? Not really. I mean, think. I think. I mean, because they they, they they refer to serfs and peasants almost interchangeably. They're not the same thing, but it's close enough for the people for all people like us who don't know enough about it that it's they're they're similar. They're close enough to like, for all intensive purposes when it comes to um, industrialization. They might as well be the same thing. So the serfs, the peasants, the rural folk, or whatever your choice of words might be. They began to flood into the cities and take up the unskilled labor positions that needed to be filled within the factories. Uh, this precipitated with exponential growth in new unskilled working class of peasants. This put a huge strain on Russian society because Russian society was still pretty much based it's on... It's all agrarian still. Yeah, it's all agrarian. It's all based on this, the very class system. And changing you're freeing an entire class of people and giving them their own rights and well that's, giving, that's a bit of a step for right at this point but giving yeah. them the freedom to go wherever Move. they wanted to yeah uh really puts a huge strange and strain on this society because suddenly they'll show up in cities and need to like eat and eat like live somewhere and that's a that's a lot to, for a city to deal with so with the huge strain on russian society as the peasants were quote we're now faced with an unfamiliar social relationships, a rigid regime of factory discipline, and distressing conditions of urban life, unquote. End quote. Sorry. End quote. That's, that unquote. End quote. End quote. Whatever. It wasn't surprising that the measures, the masses of unskilled labor were not treated well within society at large, or within the factories at all. I mean, they were treated like shit in the factories. Oh, yeah. Because basically they were seeing like this massive, like, you know, dirty, grubby serfs who show up needing, like, hungry mouths, basically, who either were seen as people just kind of annoy and take up space, or to be taken advantage of. I mean, they kind of were just taking up space. Well, yeah. And then they were definitely taken advantage of, too. <laughs> oh, taken advantage of is, to put it mildly. Uh, so, the workers were faced, or I guess the new masses of people moving into the cities, uh, as we mentioned, they were treated incredibly, like, horrific. I mean, to the measures that your, I mean, your boss gives you a project to do over the weekend, and you might grope about it. 
that's nothing compared to what these poor serfs have. Oh, yeah, they think like our like, or we think like our like, when on during like the Gilded Era, how like factory life in like the early 1800s in the United States was rough and whatnot, or like the 18 like 50s and 40s. At least they had like you know constitutional rights. These people, these were serfs. They were basically like basically slaves before this. They had nothing to even like say like they had nothing to fall back on saying oh it's stated here that I have like the right to free speech or whatever. They they weren't even they were barely viewed as people. The peasants were faced with ridiculously low wages. I mean, pennies, pennies on the day, or I guess rubles. Yeah, it was rubles. rubles. Yeah, it was rubles on the day. Still, it is rubles. But is it is it still rubles now? I think it's still rubles. Is it still rubles. It's still rubles in Russia. What the exchange rate? So the peasants were faced with ridiculously low wages, insidiously long days, and just to top it off, tyrannical bosses. I mean, these people just ran roughshod over these poor factory workers. Uh, workers, I mean, like, it was so bad that workers, and it's it's not unheard of, they would lose fingers on the job, they would lose hands, or even entire appendages of arms, and they'd just be maimed for life. Or even in some cases, they would die, which, you know, I'm not trying to go to work every day and die. Or, you know, roll the dice every day and die. I'm, or, like, you know, bet my fingers on it. So, none of this mattered, though, to the factory workers, or, sorry, factory owners, or the state. So, to them, it just seemed to be an unlimited supply. These serfs seemed to be an unlimited supply of warm bodies to fill any position that might open up at a factory. Yep, the old adage of just add more serfs. Yeah, just throw well, serfs former, former serfs now. Yeah, throw, no. You just throw serfs at it, and it works. Yeah, but they're That's... not serfs anymore. They're mm. former serfs. Yeah, well, potato, tomato. Yeah. Potato, vodka. <laughs> potato does make vodka. And I'm sure the serfs did that quite often. Real good at it. So it's not hard to see why Russian workers uh, began to band together and use their numbers to their advantage. It didn't take them long to figure out that there's a lot more to, of them than there were of um, the people putting them in these horrible working environments. Again, Napoleon's quote, quantity is a quality all of its own. Exactly. So the strike, or I'm going to butcher this, Stachka? Stachka. Stachka in the Russian, uh, was the most powerful tool the workers had, which is kind of like the, it's the tool of all groups of working class. Uh, if all the workers band together in a factory and refused to show up to work, the factory would not be making money. In some cases, the owners might give in to the workers' demands just to let them go back to, or just to get them back to work. But then there was the opposite end of the spectrum, where the state would get involved. <clears throat> and the Russian state viewed strikes as a criminal act and saw them saw it and saw its potential to become a catalyst for rebellion, which the Russians were all or the Russian like government was always very sensitive to. Oh, incredibly sensitive. I mean, all the way back to uh, the one we talked about, not Tsar Nicholas II, but Alexander II. I mean, he was murdered by a bunch of striking workers. He yeah. was uh, he had a grenade lobbed at his car. Oh, that's right, yeah. And then it blew up. Well, that's what grenades do. Yeah, they blow up. Blew up, and it maimed Alexander II really badly. And actually, the one we're talking about, the guy in charge right now, Tsar Nicholas II, Yep. he actually, as a child, watched his grandfather bleed out on the... So, well, yeah, I like the Russian, like, the foyer of the palace or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So, while not being a great statesman, he was, like, acutely aware of the stakes. Mm-hmm. So the Russian, like as we said, the Russian state viewed these strikes as criminal acts, and under the authority of the czar, 
the Tsar being the ruler of all of Russia, but Tsar also means Caesar yep. in Russian. Yep. Yes. So that's uh, a throwback. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's also like Kaiser. Kaiser yeah, means Kaiser Caesar, Caesar in, Ger- in German. It's just funny. It's just, you know, it seems out of place in like the 1900s to see someone referred to as Caesar. Yeah. So the, the Tsar saw these strikes as potential for rebellion, potential against his own power, and <clears throat> decided he, or they, saw the need to either appease the workers or suppress the workers. Yeah. Suppress these riots, suppress these people. It it entirely depended on the czar, and it entirely depended on his pretty much day-to-day mood. Yeah. I mean, it would, he would... Czar or Nicholas also what is, industry was affected. If it was like something critical to the state's security, those were taken very seriously. So the czar saw all of these as, you know, a challenge to his power base and under the authority of the czar strikes main strikers mainly the leaders and spokesmen were treated harshly and unjustly but many other cases the complaints and strikes might be reviewed and seen as a positive change for the factory owner and they would be forced to change the way they treated their employees however the change into implemented on the employers was minor compared uh, and compared uh, to how like harshly the their employees were treated when they were striking in 1870, the workers really began to see and use their own powers. They banded together and went on to see what the largest strike to see the largest strike the Russians had ever encountered up to that point in history. Nearly 4,000 people went on strike within St. Petersburg. The target, which is St. Petersburg, is the capital of Russia at this point, right? Uh, founded by Peter the Great, and like, where is it exactly? Because uh, St. Petersburg is. It's still St. Petersburg today, isn't it? It's up. Oh yes, it went from like St. Petersburg. No. Yeah, it became Leningrad, then St. Petersburg. Yep, yep, Leningrad to St. Petersburg. So it's up by Finland. Yeah, up by Finland. It's very, very close. It's on the border up there. Um, pretty much just a swamp. That. Yeah. I mean, the city's named after Saint, not Saint Peter, but Peter the Great. Peter the Great. He was uh, he pretty much bound all the Russian states and feudal lords together. Yeah, Muscovy, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, the target of this particular strike in St. Petersburg was at the Morozov's cotton mill. The strike was so large and so effective, the Tsarist authorities realized they needed to do something before this got out of hand. So, as strikes continued to get larger, reaching a fever pitch in 1884 and 1885, finally bending to the will of the people in 1886, a new law was passed by the Russian government requiring that a potential employer had to specify working conditions within their factories and put it into a contract for prospective employees. So that way that people could just, they got to read, if they could read, they could read what they were getting into, they knew the hours, they knew the wage, they knew what was required of them. And so they could, they could if something, they were asked to do something that wasn't part of their job description, they could be like, no, that's uh, not what you hired me for, I can't, I'm not doing that. Yep, and yep. they had a legal basis for it, finally. Yeah, which, I mean, that was kind of a huge step. Oh, yeah, that's still a thing today. I mean, I'm not sure, like, if, but, like, when you sign a contract for a job, you say, like, you're not supposed to do what's outside, not listed as your specific duties. And so this contract uh, included a uh, worker's wage, uh, how they were treated, the hours they would need to work, and even in the safety precautions, because that was still a big one, too. Safety precautions were, I mean, fuck. Even in the United States around this time, you still had people losing arms and cotton mills and everything. Oh, oh yeah. no. A couple That's of years before. I guess the Civil War just ended and cotton mills were... Well, they were, they, they were, they're still a thing. 
I mean, they, they didn't just go away. Cotton was still a thing. I do. mean, it was still a thing, but like, they were much more improved than. You well, know, I mean, the 1870s and 80s were like a horrible time for workers in the well, pretty much anywhere in the world. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to work there. No, no, good. Jesus, no. Yeah. Uh, while this worked in the short term, stri- strikes began to crop up all over Russia again in 1890, resulting in the government restricting work the workday to a mere 11 and a half hours in 1897. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Father Russia, because 11 and a half hours a day. Man, I couldn't imagine what I could spend the other 20, 12 and a half hours doing. Jesus, I almost said 24. Anyway, yeah, 11 and a half hours. That'd be, that'd be miserable. Because we've all worked a 12-hour day a couple of times, like, from time to time. I mean, fuck, we worked at the airport. Where it's awful. Were, it sucks. You were 12 a day, you show up and we just, like, do nothing and pass out. Except... Here you were pretty much contractually contractually obligated to do it, because if they didn't read their contract or they couldn't read, oh, yeah. they would still sign. And yeah, no, you signed up for thirteen hours a day, six days a week, or seven days a week. Oh, it was seven days a week. Most likely, it was seven days a week. I wonder how the Russian Orthodox Church thought about that. There wasn't like a day to like worship. You know, I thought that'd be a thing. Now, Russian Orthodoxy, like the religion, is very different compared to the rest of the catholic religion there's no like holy day of no, like no oh. no I think russian orthodoxy you are uh it's god i'm trying to I, it's one of those like kind of religions where everything's like super um spartan where like you live to work kind of thing yes yes you live to work like your wealth on earth represents how much you love god like uh the more you like work, your work the, ethic is like how much you love god kind of thing. yeah so the more money you have the more land you have the more possessions and like worldly things you have is showing your appreciation for god and everything it's it's incredibly fucked up and that is a tough pill to swallow and this is why i don't do religion the man leading the charge for change during these pivotal times was a certain father uh, gapon or gapon i think it's gapon 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 he was a russian orthodox priest uh, who moved from the ukraine to st petersburg in 1898 following the death of his wife he was accepted into the st petersburg theological academy and began conducting religious discussions with citizens who worked mainly in unskilled positions so all the people that we're talking about mm-hmm. eventually in 1900 he began working with impoverished families of factory workers he then organized the assembly of russian factory and mill workers of st petersburg not a not a short name. No, yeah, that's a, that's a mouthful. Not I bet it's a lot. Easy. It rolls off the tongue a lot better in Russian. Mm, I feel like Russian's probably worse. Probably not. Yeah, uh, this uh, assembly had financial support from a colonel in the Japanese army of all places, which is actually really interesting because the Japanese were coming into their own right now. And they were fighting Russia at this point. Not this one. This is the 1900. So it's oh, okay. But they were definitely you know trying to sow the seeds of let's see what we can get with the Russians. Although not that strange, as you know, right before there was the Japanese War, uh, the assembly was also patronized by the Saint Petersburg Police Department. So think about the number of people we have like helping out. This we got the Japanese government unofficially, the uh, and the Saint Petersburg Police Department supporting a like workers' union, early stage or like an embryonic form of a union. I wouldn't even call it a union. Yes, yeah, so, like, call that. Embry- but basically, an assembly of workers for workers' rights, supported by the police and a foreign government. <laughs> that's an interesting that's a that's a that's not something you see very often yeah you could take that and almost place it in our time now kind of i well i haven't looked into anything very much i can't see any real parallels to that super I mean, well I but, do, but yeah but workers are tomatoes motto yeah but this the whole police department thing will put father gaplin in a rather tenuous positions later on 
So playing both sides of the fence, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you gotta play both sides to be able to win. Got him assassinated. <laughs> so now that we know who Father Gapion is, Gapion, Gapon, Gapon. So now that we know who Father Gapon is, uh, we can finally begin to unwrap the events that will eventually culminate with the murder of a peaceful civilian protest, which almost triggers me after so watching in, the past like, six months in our own history. This could be, well, this could be, well, ours could be a lot worse. Anyway, so in 1904, there were four workers at the Putil- Putilov, Putilov. Putil- yeah, Putilov, Putilov Ironworks in St. Petersburg who were fired because of their membership with Gapon's assembly. assembly the the assembly yeah, of... Russian factory and mill workers in St. Petersburg. <laughs> that one... <laughs> I don't even think it's a good acronym for that. Anyway. <laughs> I haven't drank enough to be able to even, like, read it straight. A-R-F-M-W-P. Nope, we're just going to call it the assembly. While there were laws that were meant to help regulate managers from firing employees for reasons such as this, the manager asserted that he fired the four employees for other unrelated reasons. Oh, that's also a quote. Uh, quote, other unrelated reasons, yeah, end quote. Just vague enough to be like, oh, I didn't actually do that. In response to these layoffs, the entire workforce of the ironworks was... Or had decided, or then decided to go on strike, when the manager refused to rehire the men he had fired. So, all over Saint Petersburg, strikes began to crop up in sympathy with these four workers who got fired, and with one, nearly with the, 150,000 people yeah. went on strike from roughly 382 different factories. That is a lot of factories for one city. Yeah, that's that's a lot of factories, but I mean, it's also the capital of Russia at the time. That's true. Uh, it was the strike was so bad that there was actually no electricity in the city and they had no working newspaper well no no electricity and no newspapers and the entire city had basically shut down at this point so that that would be the equivalent of like our city bozeman just i would say about a quarter of us not doing anything we would just refuse to work for our employers Oh, is that how many? Is it, was 150,000 like a quarter of the city? 150,000 is only like a quarter of St. Petersburg. That's a, that's a ton of people to not be working. I mean, it was so bad that, like I said, there was yeah, no newspapers and no electricity. I yeah. mean, the city had basically shut down. At this I was trying point. to find the population of St. Petersburg at that time. I can't find it. Yeah. So now we've got the uh, you know the groundwork for the Bloody Sunday. Let's get into the events that actually took place on January 21st and 22nd, the day it happened. Because January 21st, you know, it was like kind of... In the twilight of the day, people start to organize, get themselves together, mm-hmm. and then on January 22nd is when things really, like, shit hit the fan. stuff kicks off. You take a big dog doo-doo and you throw it into a fan. <laughs> when the city shut down and the government and the government was pulling their hair out trying to solve the issue, the workers on strike had decided to go to Father Gapon with their demands. And on the evening of the 19th, a petition was written up at the headquarters of Gapon's movement, cleverly named Gapon Hall, <laughs> on the Schlieselberg Tract in St. Petersburg. That's German it, as hell. It's Schlieselberg. Uh, he was a German designer born in Russia. Or not German designer. He was a, a German... God, damn it. Well, architect. German architect. Okay. Yes. Damn it. I have so many friends that are architects, too. <laughs> the terms of the petition were drafted by Father Gapon himself. And made the grievances clear, not just to the factory owner, but also to the czar. They demanded better working conditions, better wages, and an unreasonable, wild request of eight-hour workdays. Oh, my God. God. If that somebody suggests, asked, 
That's just that's untenable. If somebody asked me to work an eight hour day, I'd be so pissed. Madness. Furious. Strike, break the equipment. Anyway. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, come on. What is this? Eight a socialist country? country? <laughs> 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 well, not funny, even, funny pun because of white. Exactly. What is it, autocratic at this point? It's, it's autocratic. autocratic. It's yeah. incredibly autocratic. Super, probably as much as autocratic as you can get. Um, some other demands included an end to the Russo-Japanese War, which is also a, which started in 1904 and is happening at this time as well, which is putting a major strain on the Russian economy. Huge. That's, I think, an understatement. Huge strain on oh, the yeah. Russian economy. The Russian economy. Fuck the Jap- or, The Russians that, cannot support any kind of war right now, and they're fighting a really nasty one against the Japanese. And the Japanese just kicked their ass. They, I think they just kicked the fleet. Uh, they yeah, they destroyed the entire Russian fleet, the Far East fleet, and yep. the Near and then the Western fleet. But and also then, on the land, though, it's pretty even. Yeah, but I mean, still, it's a lot of people you're, dying. You're not going to touch Jap. You're not going to touch Japan if you don't have a fleet. And seeing as how the yeah, Russians just had lost almost both, two fleets destroyed. No, not almost. They lost two. <laughs> The story of that, those fleets, we should do that one as a podcast, those two fleets. That's a really cool story. Well, as a, I mean, it depends on the day we're recording there, but a lot of people died. Anyway, um, so the Russo-Japanese War, the Russians were, that was costing them a lot of, you know, blood, sweat, and money. Uh, crazy part about, and also even universal suffrage was included. Which, yeah. What is that? What, so they can't vote, though, on anything. What are, what's universal suffrage for? I don't actually know. I don't actually know. For... Is it like rights, same rights for everybody? Is that what they're going for with that? I, I... You're asking the wrong person. I actually should know, but I don't. I but like I know they were looking for universal suffrage, which is odd because there's nothing to vote on. They, they don't. They don't. They have a czar. He decides everything. But yeah. the Duma is not even a thing yet. No, so Duma, Duma doesn't become a thing. Until because, after it becomes this. a thing because of this. That's right. Yes. Anyway, um, the crazy part about this petition and how the people thought they could get it to the czar was they would literally just bring it to the czar, just the direct approach, uh, because that's something you could do at the time. A petition could be drafted and brought to the Prikaz office in Moscow, an office dedicated to things of this nature, or the petition could be brought to the courtiers of the Tsar right outside the Winter Palace, the residence of the Tsar. So they could, they could really just present it to him if, I mean, if it Which, was important. I mean, it's not unheard of. I mean, up until, I think, right before FDR, you could walk up onto the White House lawn and knock on the front door. For real? Yeah, yeah, right up until, I think, FDR... You could just walk up and knock on the front door. I feel like that would have happened a lot more often. It did. It happened quite often. Huh. Plus, that person at the door whose whole job was to be like, no, go, no, no, go away. <laughs> well, I mean, they still had security back then. Or they just take it, okay, we'll get to this. I mean, it's, it's, it's the same same idea, but, you know, Russia's a couple of years behind us and everything. Yeah, at that time, they were a couple of years back. So... Marching on the Winter Palace wasn't something new or unheard of at this time either. Many groups have resorted to actions like this to make their points, you know, important, like known and important. Um, however, until this time, a strike on this magnitude had not been seen in Russia. What was it, the major strike before this was 4,000 people, and now there's suddenly 150,000 people? Yeah. Yep. That's a few times bigger. Uh, As the majority of the population believed in the values of the Russian Orthodox religion, too. Um, Having faith in the autocracy that ruled over them, uh, they were being they were indifferent to political life. Yeah, they really I mean, for the most part. So that's why this is like crazy because they also believe that the um, the czar was like a, like kind of their representative, or protector of the people. Father, he was the father of the people. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And uh, they believed wholeheartedly, entirely, one hundred and ten percent in the czar and all the decisions he made. And that he had the divine right to rule. Oh yeah, oh yeah, entirely divine right to rule, 
But unfortunately for him, that changes real quick. Yeah. Actually, an interesting thing, they, the petition that Father Gappa and his supporters put together had a uh, quote in it that, that to wrap up the petition that said, and quote. Oh, sorry. Who wants forward. to quote it? No, you, no, no, you go for it. So the final quote or the final sentence of the petition, the supporters of the... The final quote of the petition is... Final quote of the petition, and I quote, And if thou dost not so order, and does not respond to our pleas, we will die here in the square before thy palace. End quote. And that was, I mean, it's a hell of a way to end a petition. That's pretty cool. I mean, <laughs> That's pretty gonna, badass. If you're going to write a say. petition, you might as well just do it that we'll, way. We'll do it. Get it. We're going to die right here. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, for the men do die. Yeah. So in preparation for their march on the Winter Palace, uh, Father Gaplin had sent the petition to the Minister of the Interior, hoping that they might get a response and have the situation resolved before they actually had to march on the palace. Or events took, took a turn for the worse, yes. which... They had to march on the palace. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Upon receiving a petition and forewarning from Father Gapon, the Tsar and his government decided to deploy troops around the Winter Palace to help them stem the, to help stem the tide of the crowds and number of people who might join the march. Which, you know, you're always preparing for the best or, I guess, the worst events yeah. or turnout if uh, you're deploying troops around your own home. Yeah, and, like, our police are supposedly violent. This is violent. <laughs> oh, this gets a lot, like, a lot more work. Like, oh, God. Yeah. So basically, uh, the stage was set. Government versus the people for the events that would transpire on January 22nd, 1905. So, in the twilight of the morning of January 22nd, six different locations throughout St. Petersburg, crowds began to congregate. Men, women, and even the children all came together to form what what might have been the largest protest in Russian history and to march on the palace of the Tsar. While singing hymns and patriotic songs, the crowd organized itself and began the slow, long walk to the palace. Unbeknownst to the protesters, the Tsar had actually left his palace for calmer waters. In preparation for the march, which is kind of incredibly fucked up. I mean, he knows this is about to happen, so he just leaves. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, it's not my, not my cup of tea. Nearly three, and I quote, nearly, quote, 3,000 proceeded without police interference towards the Winter Palace, end quote. Organizers of the protest had decided that women and children should lead the march as it might make the czar's government more sympathetic to their cause but this would turn out to be a hellish mistake the czar hearing about the marchers had taken military measures and had troops shipped in from across the empire across the empire to guard his palace the imperial guard who watched over the palace and his family along with his revered cossack guards had been stationed in and around the palace and city to help stem the tide of the protest, but some of which were hot-headed raw recruits itching for a fight and made their way to the front ranks. Nearly 10,000 troops were ordered to halt the procession, and before they got to the palace, the troops that, themselves... Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I mean, that's also 10,000 troops versus some of the protester groups... Uh, out of those six different processions that were meant to make their way towards the Winter Palace, there was only about 
3,000 to 4,000 estimates. Protesters. I mean, yeah, they were not, I mean... Yeah, the, I guess the, the police definitely had the advantage. There. I mean, at least that day. There were other protests going on, but this one that Father Gapion... Gapion? Gapon. Gapon. The one that Father Gapon had organized, this is only like three to 4,000 people versus 10,000 trained... Well, yeah, there are trained troops, a lot of police, too. Uh, police, actually... Many police barricades were overrun... And the police actually joined. Well, some police did. Some troops did. It, that, that we'll get to that. Like, the troops themselves, being commanded by a disorganized lot of generals, didn't really coordinate with each other and had been led to believe this, pro- this protest or this march was going to be incredibly violent and rambunctious. And basically, they, they were preparing for a uh, raid to take over the palace, pretty much, or an assault on the palace. So... Tensions ran high. They weren't expecting the protesters to show up and present just a petition. They were expecting, like, attack. The first reports of shooting actually occurred at 10 a.m. as marchers encountered vast groups of police and soldiers. Their response ran the gamut from joining the protests to allowing them to pass charging into the crowds with sabers to disperse them. I mean... It really, really depended on the spot and the protests oh, yeah. were at. What particular like unit of soldiers or police you ran into? Contrary to the common myth, there were no singular encounters between marchers and government forces outside the Winter Palace. The shootings were much more sporadic and dispersed throughout the city, with many victims not even aware there was any disturbance until the shots came. People were just walking about their day. Yeah, a lot of people were just kind of want, like, just enjoying their Friday. Or it was whatever, Sunday. Sunday, the, Bloody yeah, Sunday. The 22nd, right. right? Bloody Sunday. Enjoying their Sunday, and then they'd be shot at because they, they were grouped up in a park or whatever. Mm-hmm. For example, around 2 p.m., families... Uh, promenading or promenading. Family, families promenading on Nevetsky Protsky... Protsket... As was, just a park, right? I think it is just a park. They were just promenading around on a Sunday afternoon. Were struck by four volleys from a different, from a detachment of Imperial Guards. There were some groups of workers on their way to the Winter Palace among them, but most were just simply enjoying the gardens when they were fired upon after a single warning shot. Yeah, after the smoke had settled and people began to wrap their heads around what had happened, the fallen had be, had or the fallen had finally begun. Yeah, people counted. started to count the dead. Officially, according to Tsarist forces uh, or like the imperial troops involved, uh, ninety-six people had been killed and three hundred and thirty-three were injured. It's an exact number, three hundred and thirty-three. Very specific, yeah. Uh, on the reverse side of the coin, anti-government advocates said that nearly 4,000 people have been shot and killed, and an additional 1,000 were wounded from the shootings. The Tsar, a sad-shelled man, described the events of that day as, quote, sad and painful, end quote. Father Gapion, seeing the magnitude of what had just transpired, quickly shut down his organization and fled the country 
for fears of repercussions. Yeah, he bailed immediately. I mean, I would too. Yeah. I'm not going to lie that's there. A, that's going to hear me rounded up by the secret police and shot. Although not at the Winter Palace or even remotely close to the events of that day of January 22nd, 1905. The Tsar, he, was mostly blamed for what had occurred. The people had finally lost faith in the Tsar and his ability to lead the country. And as this feeling began to take root throughout the country, the seeds of revolution were yeah. fermented. So interestingly, the immediate aftermath, the immediate aftermath of this event, uh, strike, uh, erup- strikes erupted all across the country, and some four hundred thousand people uh, rec- uh, participated in this work stoppage across Russia. Uh, these lasted. These strikes lasted for about a year. And the Tsar had tried to appease the people first by setting up the Duma, which we mentioned earlier, which is some like an assembly of people to vote on like. Laws it's kind of like Russia, or kind of like Russia. It's kind of like a uh, Britain's constitutional monarchy where they have the parliament. Yeah, or like they vote on it. Japanese with the king. diet. Yeah. But this was, you know, that didn't really appease the workers. And eventually they, uh, they had to resort to force. And by the end of 1905, it's estimated some 15,000 workers and peasants had been killed, another 20,000 injured, and some 45,000 forced into exile because of all the strikes and subversive uh, activity. Arguably. Argu- oh, sorry, yeah. Sorry. No, no, go for it. I was say, arguably the most significant result of the incident with the damage it caused to the Tsar's reputation, who, before this, had been seen as a champion of the people and bulwark against the corruption of indifferent bureaucrats in government. After this, it was believed he no longer had the divine right to rule and could not be relied upon by the people to protect them. It laid a lot of the groundwork for 1917. When the revolution is, actually took <laughs> Yeah, that's... And that's a whole different story. I mean, that's a whole different podcast. You could do a whole podcast just on... A whole podcast series on that. That's yeah, a, There's a lot going on there. Um, but yeah, that that is the Bloody Sunday. Yeah. Depends on who you believe. 4,000 killed or... 96. 96. 333 injured or 1,000. It really depends on what you're reading. And I was going to wonder where they get the numbers from. Because like... I was like when they're very specific numbers, like 96 were killed and 333 were injured. Exactly. No more, no less. <laughs> or when someone says like, it was like around 4,000. It's like, I always wonder how they count these kind of things or who's counting or what are they? I mean, they're, I mean, that's hard to say because I'm not going out there and just going to give it. It's, it's like a, what, Kublai Khan or the, or the Huns where they cut the ears off. And you counted your dead by just cutting the ear off. Yeah. <laughs> that's, at least that's solid accounting right there. <laughs> because numbers are not emotional. <laughs> no, they are not, my friend. Yeah. And on well, that note. Thank you for listening. And we will be back uh, in about a week with another episode. Yeah. Um, we also had an announcement. We are going to be switching from Friday oh, yes. recordings. Yeah, Friday recordings, we're going to be going to Sunday recordings. Because our work schedules do not work for us trying to record on Fridays. None of us have the time to sit down and record. We are fruity fucked every week. We just don't have enough time to get our shit together, type it on outline. I mean, this one took us, what, four days, five days just to type out and get this. And we still just pulled it all together at the end. Yep, pretty much. So we were going to be switching from Friday recordings 
to Sunday recordings, so the events that we might talk about will probably be happening on Sundays, but recordings will not get published until Monday. Um, yeah. Other than that, I think we are all, all even right now, pot's even. You should follow me on Instagram. I'm at Connor James. Jackson is at... There's no reason to follow me. I don't put things on Instagram. <laughs> Jackson is at Jackson underscore Langley. Follow the podcast. That'd be a good one. <laughs> or just go follow the podcast, which is yesterday's underscore history 4271 at Instagram. We are, as most of our listeners probably know us, we are on Spotify, Apple, Google, Alexa. You'll find us somewhere. Yeah, you'll find us somewhere. So on that note, I hope everybody's doing safe. I hope everybody's doing fantastic, staying healthy, and enjoying some of their last weeks of social distancing. I hope last weeks. God, I hope so. Who knows? It's almost over. It's almost over. On that note, we will talk to you guys all next week. Love y'all.